This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is A Higher Purpose for Education. In the first half, Drew Gilpin Faust shares her BYU Forum address entitled Humility, Hope, and the Work of Becoming Educated. Then in the second half, we will hear from Craig A. Carden with his BYU commencement speech, And Thus We See. I'm delighted to have been invited to think with you all for a few minutes today about what it means to be educated, as much of my life has been dedicated to the exploration of that question. During our first week of college in 1964, my freshman class gathered in a cavernous auditorium designed to look like a medieval hall in order to hear an address from the college president. The ceremony was to be the capstone of our orientation week. This was Bryn Mawr, a venerable institution founded in the late 19th century to provide university-level education for women at a time when that was a revolutionary notion. From its beginnings, it had been a place of very serious intellectual ambition, and that had inspired many of us in attendance to choose to come there. The president, Ms. Catherine McBride, embodied that seriousness to the point of being downright intimidating. She had been president since before any of us were born. She had her hair pulled back in a tight bun and a stern and forbidding demeanor that made an indelible impression on us all. A half century later, I found myself a college president addressing gatherings of newly arrived freshmen. And I fear that what I said on those occasions was likely little noted nor long remembered. But much of Ms. McBride's message has stayed with me to this day. I was struck, first of all, that she repeatedly referred to our work in an almost reverential way, the way one might describe an author or an artist's oeuvre. We were not just going to take classes or decide on majors. These would be part of a more all-encompassing understanding of our purposes. It gave what we were embarking on a new kind of importance, almost a transcendence. But even more memorable for me was another emphasis in her remarks. Learning, she said, must begin with humility. To truly learn, you must open yourself up to the notion that you have a lot to learn, that what you do not know is close to infinite. A sense of ignorance fuels the desire to overcome it. Humility is a prerequisite for becoming educated. Many of us present that day had a kind of deer-in-the-headlights approach as we faced our first days of college. If we were supposed to be humble, it wasn't going to be all that hard. But Ms. McBride intended a more lasting humility. It was not meant to be a posture just for the initial weeks of our college experience. It was not an outlook later to be abandoned as we reached the lofty status of juniors or seniors. Humility should be a permanent commitment and condition because knowledge itself was endless. There would always be more to know than we had already learned. Our work, our education would never be complete. Education is not a destination. One can never say, great, now I have my BA or my PhD or my MD or my MBA or my JD or whatever it might be and conclude, now I am educated. Education is a process and a vocation always a work in progress. 
I am still becoming educated. Ms. McBride was herself known for always asking, what can I learn from this? As long as life lasts, so too do the opportunities to learn anew. We need to make sure we are open and ready for them. Making humility the source and even the engine of learning has some significant implications for how we pursue that goal. The first I've just mentioned, education is lifelong because what you don't know will always exceed what you do. But embracing humility involves other imperatives as well. Almost by definition, humility is the opposite of narcissism and self-absorption. Education must be about seeing and knowing more than just about ourselves. Education requires us to look beyond our own experience and seek to understand our lives within a broader context. There are many intellectual avenues by which to accomplish this. The requirements of the undergraduate curriculum here at Brigham Young University outline a number of them, endeavoring to illuminate many of the pathways you might choose to follow. You have 187 possible majors. They range across all the sciences, social sciences, and humanities. The infinity of the galaxies or the complexity of a single human cell are sobering reminders of the enormity of the universe in which we occupy such a minuscule place. Literary study takes us beyond ourselves as well, introducing us to characters and circumstances outside our own experience. The insights of a novelist or a playwright or a poet help us to get inside someone else's head, to see the world from a different perspective through others' eyes. Literature is often described as nurturing the sense of empathy, of our ability to imaginatively project our own consciousness into that of another human being, or theirs into us. It encourages us to notice that which we might otherwise not see. Anthropology is another such avenue. In its pursuit of ethnography, it urges us to look at other worlds, at places and cultures that may seem strange and disorienting, humbling as we come to recognize our dependence on the taken-for-granted assumptions of our own world. We seek to understand how people different from ourselves interpret their own behavior, how they construct habits, relationships, and beliefs. Why do people eat certain foods and not others? Why, by implication, do we? Why do they marry certain people and not others? How and why do different societies treat death differently? And what rituals do they observe to mark the meaning of those choices? Every field on offer here at BYU can enable you to develop a new perspective on your life and experience if you open yourself to being a little disoriented, to seeing your own assumptions and choices as contingent, to examining their foundations in order to understand them anew. The field of history to which I've devoted my life and career is one that I have found particularly suited to pose questions meaningful to my own experiences. James Baldwin once wrote, and I quote him, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. But learning and questioning can offer a means of escaping that entrapment. A true understanding of the past can disentangle us from lingering vestiges of harmful assumptions 
that may in hidden ways influence us still. Just as literature or anthropology or the sciences help us to see beyond ourselves, history enables us to do similar work by placing our lives in a context of time as well as space. It can help us understand what brought us to where we are and thus free us to see how we might act in order to move towards where we want to go. A few years ago, I published a book about Americans' attitudes towards death in the 19th century, asking how they were affected by the enormous human cost of the Civil War. I was deeply moved by the many letters and diaries by soldiers and civilians alike describing bereavement and loss. But I was also struck by how our forebears lived in a world very different from our own. Modern American society has often been described as one that denies and endeavors to hide death. My colleague Atul Gawande, a distinguished surgeon who is also a best-selling author, has written powerfully about this. Mortality was not one of the things he learned about in medical school, he explains. There was a deep, and I quote him, reluctance to honestly examine the experience of aging and dying. The reality of death in our culture, he believes, has been largely hidden. In 19th century America, I found in my research, things were quite different. Of course, in an age of high infant mortality, an age before the discovery of the germ theory and antibiotics, mortality would have been more difficult to avoid or deny. But 19th century Americans chose to give death a central place in their systems of belief. By acknowledging that life will end, they insisted, a person embraces a sense of life's preciousness. Because it is finite, life must not just be treasured, but used to its fullest purpose. Awareness of death, they believed, gave life deeper meaning and purpose. Reading about how our forebears approached the devastation of civil war, whose death toll measured the equivalent of more than 7 million people in the United States today. I was made vividly aware of the choices our contemporary society has made in its approach to death. Choices, choices quite different from those available to Americans just 150 years ago. Our reluctance to think about death, as Dr. Gawande illustrates in his moving book, Being Mortal, has led us to want to hide the aging and dying in nursing homes, to avoid speaking about death to individuals left to confront it alone, to fail to consult with the dying about what they most hope the quality of their last days and weeks might be. But my excursion into the past maybe made me see these attitudes are not inevitable. People in other times and places have thought and acted otherwise we would do well to open ourselves to what those from other times and places might tell us. Dr. Gawande urges us all to make other choices, to reform the experiences of aging and dying in a way that brings greater compassion to those facing the end of life. Dr. Gawande published his book well before the pandemic, brought the realities of death in our country much closer to some of the experiences of the 19th century. When COVID-19 struck, we had no antibiotics that could end the spread of this disease. We had inadequate preparation and facilities for the sick and for those who died. We were as unprepared for the enormous death toll as 19th century Americans had been 
for the losses of the Civil War. When I learned last spring of a field hospital erected in Central Park and coffins piled up in refrigerated trucks awaiting burial, I felt I had been transported to another era I had only known through books and manuscripts. We had assumed a kind of confidence, even arrogance, that reassured us we were beyond anything like that. Immune, we might say, meaning it both literally and metaphorically. But we were not. We were facing some of the same dilemmas and were ourselves now struggling to retain not just our lives, but our sense of humanity and decency in face of the epidemic's demands. We could learn much about managing mass death by opening ourselves up to listen to the voices of those who have preceded us. As classicist Kyle Harper has written in an op-ed comparing our pandemic to a plague that ravaged ancient Rome, and I quote him, history is powerful because we can identify with the hopes, follies, and sorrows of those who have come before us in recognizing the limits of their power in face of nature, we can also acknowledge our own. But these admissions of frailty, he urges, and I quote him again, should not make us fatalistic. Rather, it should inspire us to be less complacent. A deepened humility enables us not just to see more clearly, but to act to understand our choices differently as we place them in the context of choices made by others in other times and places. It is both clarifying and empowering. And just as humility is a foundation for education, so education reinforces that humility. My research on death and 19th century Americans led me to believe there were things I could learn from them things that they might have understood better than I did. But a lot of my investigations into the past have led me to a quite different set of conclusions. Many historical figures from that era believed, expressed, and actively defended views that today we find abhorrent. As part of a broader racial reckoning in this country, we are confronting and condemning those views. We are removing monuments and statues and building names intended to honor those who devoted their lives to advancing ideas and policies sharply at odds with our present day commitments to equality and justice. We are right to be doing this. We should have stopped honoring such individuals long ago. We are just to claim in this instance that we know better than the past. So how then do these principles of openness and humility fit in? How can we be educated by listening to those we deplore as well as those we admire? I wrote my PhD thesis and first book about a group of pre-Civil War Southerners who defended slavery. Looking back, I'm sure that I was influenced in choosing this topic by having grown up in segregated 1950s Virginia where all the adults influential in my life accepted and supported the indefensible racial status quo. These were the people who instructed me in the principles of Christianity in Sunday school and the principles of American democracy in my school classrooms. 
how had those I loved and even looked up to convinced themselves to accept a system so patently wrong, un-American, and unchristian? I wondered a lot about this as a child, and at the age of nine even defied my parents and wrote a letter to President Eisenhower demanding that he support school integration. Nearly two days, decades later, my PhD thesis represented another way of posing the same question, but this time to the inhabitants of a different century. How could white Southerners of the pre-Civil War era who regarded themselves as decent Christian people who got up in the morning believing they were righteous and moral, come not just to tolerate, but to actively defend such a cruel and unjust system. They were seen and saw themselves as upright citizens. How did they convince themselves of these despicable beliefs and justify their loathsome actions? And here's where the humility part comes in. How might we today be deluding ourselves in ways not unlike those in which they deluded themselves? How do the mechanisms of self-justification and moral blindness operate? How did these antebellum Southerners define and understand their choices? How might we today, reflecting on their lives, be more clear-sighted about our own choices? I often wonder what our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will find appalling about us. That we eat meat? That we're not doing more about climate change? That one certainly. I hope that they will not just condemn and dismiss us, but endeavor to understand how we saw our options as we sought to live what we intended to be decent moral lives. I believe that if we approach the past with the goal of understanding rather than judging, we have the opportunity to learn from the shortcomings as well as the achievements of our forebears. If we can comprehend the sources and mechanisms of their blindnesses, perhaps we can better equip ourselves to acknowledge and confront our own. Studying history has diminished my eagerness to judge or condemn people in the past and present and has enhanced my desire and I hope my capacity to understand and to see the world through others' eyes. Viet Thanh Nguyen, who fled Vietnam with his family at the age of four, has written powerfully about the history and memory of what we in the United States call the Vietnam War. Confronting the difficult truths of the past, he argues, is essential to acting ethically in the present. Let me quote him. Reminding ourselves that being human also means being inhuman is important simply because it is so easy to forget our inhumanity or to displace it onto other humans. If we do not recognize our capacity to victimize, then it would be difficult for us to prevent the victimization carried out on our behalf or which we do ourselves. History humbles us by revealing our capacity to victimize but in that revelation, it equips us with the possibility of resisting those instincts and perhaps even overcoming them. I want to consider another manner in which humility is central to the lifelong project of education. And this has to do with the humility of acknowledging that we are lucky. 
no matter how many obstacles we have overcome. We have received our education in some measure through no cause of our own. Our parents, our health, our schools, our teachers, our coaches, our financial aid, a book that changed our lives, predecessors who fought for access to education, someone who guided us, someone who propped us up when we were down, persuaded us to persevere and not give up. We are all the product of much more than ourselves. Our search to become educated is made possible by those who came before us and those who walk alongside us. Learning occurs in communities, the community of those who have accumulated the knowledge we seek to master, the community that enables us to acquire it for ourselves. We're not hardwired to recognize this. We tend to attribute meaning, logic, cause to things that may be in large part fortuitous. We tend to overemphasize our own agency. Now, I don't want to belittle all that each one of you has done to earn your way to BYU and to thrive here. You should have great pride in all of it. But the opportunities we enjoy can come to seem like entitlements, ours because we deserve them. Part of becoming educated is understanding things might have been otherwise and accepting the obligation that comes with that recognition. Think of those who have not had our luck. Think of Malala, who was shot because she was determined to go to school. Think of enslaved men and women in the pre-Civil War South, risking severe punishment by secretly learning to read, although it was forbidden by law. Think of Helen Keller, unable to see or hear, who learned to read by tapping out words on her teacher's palm and then went on to graduate from college and write 14 books. Think of all those who face similar or even higher obstacles and not been able to find a path to overcome them. Education ought to be a right, but in too many instances in the world, in too many places in the world, it remains a privilege. We have been extraordinary beneficiaries of this privilege, and we must not take that for granted. When we acknowledge that reality, we accept responsibility to make sure that the education that has enabled us to see a world beyond ourselves also compels us into serving those whose luck did not, for whatever reason, put them in the same spot we occupy. Each one, teach one. It's a saying often attributed to slavery times and the obligation that rested on any enslaved person who learned to read to then teach someone who hadn't. The phrase was also used by prisoners at Robben Island in South Africa, where Nelson Mandela was held for 18 years. Any prisoner who was literate had the obligation to instruct another. In 2017, Denzel Washington invoked the words in a commencement speech at Dillard University. Each one, teach one, he said. Don't just aspire to make a living, aspire to make a difference. Humbled by our good fortune, we should do whatever we can to share it. Though we continue to pursue it for our whole lives, we should never take our education for granted. A few years ago, 
the Graduate School of Education at Harvard adopted a motto that it emblazoned on banners and brochures and fundraising appeals. It was a great double entendre. Learn to change the world. Meaning number one, learn in order to change the world. Education changes the world by implication. The School of Education is in a field that really matters. But also meaning number two, learn how to change the world, which the words imply one can do by acquiring specific skills and approaches at the ed school. The phrase is at once an invitation, come and learn how to change the world, and a statement of fact, education changes the world. Change, the message is, lies at the heart of what education does, how it empowers us and what it demands of us. Seen beyond ourselves enables us to imagine and act on behalf of a different future. The research mission of universities that rests at the heart of higher education is fundamentally about change. At Harvard, the essential question we ask as we consider appointing a professor is, what has this person done to alter and enhance our understanding of the world? We tenure faculty who have made new contributions to knowledge, who have transformed their fields, and are eager to share these new findings with their students. Here at BYU, recent faculty discoveries range from insights into how family structures affected the founding fathers' votes on the Constitution, to the effects of social media on suicide risk for teenage girls, to the implications of ice sheet dynamics for historical ecosystems. Students at BYU are themselves already involved in making scholarly contributions to the store of human knowledge, analyzing data sets from 1918 to better understand the nature of pandemics, designing thermal imaging systems to detect wildfires, using machine learning to solve a complex chemical problem. They too are caught up in the change that is fundamental to the educational process. And the centrality of this change is closely tied to the imperatives of humility I've been describing. To seek to be educated is to be willing to submit ourselves to a process of growth, to say that we are willing to alter parts of ourselves in order to take on new ones. BYU's mission statement aspires to an education that is, and I quote it, spiritually strengthening, intellectually enlarging, character building. To strengthen, to enlarge, to build is necessarily to change. A senior at BYU sees a different world from the one she knew as a freshman. The wider context and perspectives of the fields I have described will have defined a new universe, one shaped by the new galaxies or the past centuries her studies have revealed to her, a larger universe than the more limited one with which she entered. An appropriate humility will have imbued her as well with the sense of appreciation and responsibility that guarantees that her education will not just enable, but compel her to seek to build a better world. She will have learned to change the world. The centrality of change to education brings me to the second H of my title, 
hope. In its very essence, education is about hope and about the future. The 35,000 students at BYU came here with aspirations about what education could make possible, about how their lives would be changed and improved as a result of the time they spend here. And BYU has high hopes for all of you. Education casts its eye on creating a different future, a different personal future for those who grow into doctors or lawyers or nurses or accountants or business people or teachers. But this university emphasizes that it seeks more than training. It recognizes that education must be about a different future, not just for ourselves as individuals, but for a wider society that will benefit from the contributions of those who learn. That is an ideal at the heart of American higher education. For example, it underlay the Morrill Act of 1862 that established the land-grant university system as the federal government's first and most sweeping contribution to our educational system and affirmed the principle that education must necessarily be a public good in terms both of its availability and its impact. These actions and these principles are founded in hope. They display a commitment to a future that will be better because of our determination to become educated. Dedicating oneself to a lifelong process of learning is to be an idealist, to reject despair, to embrace the future. America's founding fathers saw education as essential to their vision of the new nation and what it might become. Education would be a vehicle through which their hope and dream for a lasting republic and a more perfect union might be realized. They were certain it could not be realized without it. John Adams declared, liberty cannot be preserved without a general knowledge among the people. Surely, James Madison concurred, It belongs to our colleges and universities to lay the foundation from which the future glory of America shall arise. Thomas Jefferson agreed. If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, this will be their great security against tyranny. If a nation, he continued, expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. Jefferson, as you know, founded a university to embody these principles and regarded it, along with the Declaration of Independence and the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, as the crowning achievement of his life. It was what he wanted to have inscribed on his tombstone. In 1821, near the end of his life, Jefferson wrote of, and I quote him, the hope that light and liberty are on a steady advance. The new nation was now 45 years old. Enlightenment and freedom stood united together in his mind, moving forward together and fueling the hopes he had nurtured for so long. Our national project and our educational project have advanced together since our country's founding. Every extension of rights, every new birth of freedom, has been accompanied by the expansion of access to education. Our hopes of being a more perfect union and of including more and different sorts of people within the body politic have been inseparable from our commitment to education 
as both cause and outcome of that progress. As Frederick Douglass declared, education means emancipation. And just as education has shaped our national identity and aspirations, as well as our optimism about our possibilities, so too it continues to shape us individually. Education is the vehicle we ride to the future, both individually and collectively. We will continue to be educated in one way or another until our very last breath. But our commitment should be to be educated well, broadly, with a humility that opens us to the widest possibilities for knowledge. And hopefully, with an eye to how learning can enable us to contribute to a better future, not just for ourselves, but for all the world. Benjamin Franklin once said that the great aim and end of all learning was, and I'm quoting him, an inclination joined with an ability to serve mankind. It would be hard to sum it up better than that. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is A Higher Purpose for Education. We've just heard from Drew Gilpin-Faust. After the break, we'll return for Craig A. Carden with And Thus We See. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is A Higher Purpose for Education. Next is Craig A. Carden, a member of the 70 of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when this address was given, entitled, And Thus We See. Over the years, I have collected many quotations about education. One of my favorites comes from Sir Francis Bacon, an English statesman and philosopher. He identifies three central elements of education—reading, conference, or conferring with others, and writing. He said, Reading maketh a full man, conference a ready man, and writing an exact man. And therefore, if a man write little, he had need have a great memory. If he confer little, he had need have a present wit. And if he read little, he had need have much cunning to seem to know that he doth not. This observation is wise counsel to all who are engaged in educational pursuits, formal and informal. Reading, conferring, and writing all serve to exercise the mind, quicken the intellect, and discipline our expression, eliciting our very best. But unless reading, conferring, and writing have an essential spiritual element, they fall woefully short in pursuing the highest education available to us. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord admonishes us to seek learning, even by study and also by faith. This admonition suggests that the education God desires us to obtain embodies these two essential elements of study and faith, and that the absence of either study or faith compromises learning. Furthermore, this manner of learning invites us to engage a never-ending commitment to continuing education. Indeed, 
Though you will receive diplomas evidencing the attainment of a particular level of formal education, you now embark on a lifetime of learning, much of it exhilarating, most of it informal, and all of it of inestimable value. Thirteen years ago, I returned as a student to the formal classroom after a 30-year absence. This experience afforded me the opportunity to examine important societal issues with honorable men and women of compatible and opposing views. Because most of the professors and other students held worldly views on many social issues, and because of the rigorous way we explored those issues, learning by faith in addition to learning by study was, for me, essential. It provided an inextinguishable flame of truth that enlightened every subject I encountered in and out of the classroom. This perspective is reflected in a host of scriptures typified by the following words from Jacob. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know for of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. But to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. And also these words of the Lord to the prophet Joseph Smith. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake that evil one. These and similar verses emphasize the importance of both gaining knowledge and ensuring that the knowledge we gain is founded in truth and is applied in a way that is consistent with the counsel of God. It is in this light that while I was preparing for this address, the Lord brought to my attention a scriptural phrase that I soon discovered to be unique to the Book of Mormon. This phrase, with its specific word content and sequencing, is not found in any other book of scripture. The phrase is simply, and thus we see. Other related phrases in the Book of Mormon include, thus we see, thus we may see, we can behold, we can see, and finally the descriptive and meaningful, and thus we can plainly discern. Once again, these specific words and these specific sequences are found only in the Book of Mormon. In total, the phrase, and thus we see, is used 21 times in the Book of Mormon. Not surprisingly, Mormon, the principal compiler of the book, uses this phrase 16 times. Now I would like to explore with you the educational values embedded in the phrase, and thus we see. Those values have much to do with your continuing education. We will focus on how just two of the Book of Mormon writers, Mormon and Nephi, use the phrase. We begin with Mormon. The first time Mormon employs this phrase is in abridging the account of the remarkable conversion of the Lamanites who had changed their name to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Subsequently, they presented themselves to be slaughtered by their former fellow Lamanites, rather than risk offending God by using their swords against them. After recording these extraordinary events, Mormon observes, and thus we see that when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of war for peace. 
Mormon goes on to explain that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's would lie down and perish and praise God even in the very act of perishing under the sword. In sharing the significant account of applied faith, Mormon explains, Now when the other Lamanites saw this, they did forbear from slaying them. And there were many whose hearts had swollen in them for those of their brethren who had fallen under the sword, for they repented of the things which they had done. And it came to pass that they threw down their weapons of war, and they would not take them again, for they were stung for the murders which they had committed. And they came down, even as their brethren, relying upon the mercies of those whose arms were lifted to slay them. Mormon records that the people of God were joined that day by more than the number who had been slain, and that those who had been slain were righteous people. Therefore, we have no reason to doubt but what they were saved. He then adds, Thus we see that the Lord worketh in many ways to the salvation of his people. But Mormon found even more in this account to help us see and discern. He continues, Now the greatest number of those of the Lamanites who slew so many of their brethren were former Nephites, the greatest number of whom were after the order of the Nehors. Now among those who joined the people of the Lord, there were none who were former Nephites or who were of the order of Nehor. With this sad commentary, Mormon employs a phrase found only once in all of Scripture. And thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and have fallen away, have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. Now, in light of the importance of continuing education and the Lord's admonition to seek learning even by study and also by faith, what is there in this account that Mormon invites us to see and discern with him? Over a period of a few hundred years, Lamanite and Nephite cousins had been at war fighting and killing each other. Certain mileposts in Mormon's earlier writings help us see how the Lamanites and the Nephites got to this point. Recognizing these mileposts may help us avoid similar conflicts in our journey through life. Lehi's family had been divided because of Laman and Lemuel's hard hearts, by their desire to rule over others, and by the contention they continually brought to their familial interactions. Because they were unwilling to change, Nephi had attempted to distance himself from them by physical separation, but this did not resolve the problem. The real problem. The Lamanites pursued the Nephites and battled them even in their new locations. Hatred, hard-heartedness, pride, murmuring, rudeness, and contention were the real problems. And Laman and Lemuel were content in their contention. Rudeness and contention offend conscience and often provoke one to assuage conscience through self-justification. And one's associates will not condone rudeness or contention without justification. Therefore, Laman and Lemuel had to justify themselves and convince others of their justification. This they did by indoctrinating their families with messages of hatred for Nephi and his descendants. Mormons sometimes refer to this pattern of self-justification and indoctrination 
as the incorrect tradition of their fathers. Indeed, he records that in an uninterrupted pattern, Lamanite parents taught their children to hate their cousins over many generations. Only through the exercise of faith by, the, by servants of the Lord and through the operation of the Spirit did the Lamanites finally come to the knowledge of the truth and to the knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their fathers, which were not correct. By this means, many lives were changed eternally and conflicts were resolved. This simple formula of exercising faith and the operation of the Spirit is the means to resolve hatred and contentions among today's families, nations, and peoples. Mormons saw the effect of it within the context of generations. We may do the same. However, there is an even more egregious element associated with this account, the apostate Nephites after the order of Nehor. Nehor was a man who taught two simple intoxicating false doctrines against which the people of God and the Book of Mormon forever struggled thereafter and against which we struggle today. The first false doctrine is this. Religious leaders should be popular and should be supported financially by the people. The second false doctrine has profound spiritual implications. Don't worry about sinning because the Lord has redeemed all mankind, no matter what they do. In other words, because God is merciful, there is no wrong and no one need repent. Alma identified these flattering concepts as priestcraft. When he encountered this false doctrine, he observed that were priestcraft to be enforced among this people, it would prove their entire destruction. Indeed, priestcraft among the apostate Nephites nearly destroyed the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. In his account of these converted Lamanites, Mormon notes that while some hardened Lamanite hearts were softened when they saw their brethren prostrate themselves before them, the hearts of the apostate Nephites, those who had once known the truth and then turned to the falsehood perpetrated by Nehor, could not be penetrated. This was not only self-justification in the way they conducted themselves. It was self-justification as a foundational religious doctrine, and that doctrine is dangerously false. In today's world, the false doctrines of Nehor surround you. Popular propaganda supported by the people loudly proclaim that actions and lifestyles mocking God's commandments are merely acceptable expressions of individual freedoms. They say that if there is a God, he would not hold people accountable for such actions. This philosophy now permeates virtually every aspect of life. It is not surprising, then, that Mormon uses the singularly unique phrase, and thus we can plainly discern, to help the spiritually inclined see the dangers of apostasy. In using this phrase, Mormon employs the notion of discernment, of seeing with spiritual eyes and identifying the risk of sinning against light and knowledge. Now let us consider the perspective of another writer in the Book of Mormon, Nephi. While Mormons and thus we see comes from a perspective arising in part from patterns he saw occurring over centuries, Nephi's and thus we see comes from events he personally experienced. Like Mormon, Nephi derived lessons from those experiences for other aspects of life. We will look at his use of this phrase as it relates to the Liahona, which the Book of Mormon often refers to as the ball. While journeying in the wilderness, Nephi broke his bow. 
Because the bows of his brethren had lost their springs, the family was unable to obtain food. In this precarious circumstance, most of the family began to murmur against the Lord. Nephi was the exception. Rather than murmur, he went to work. He did make out of wood a bow, and out of a straight stick an arrow. Wherefore, he did arm himself with a bow and an arrow, with a sling and with stones. Always respectful of the Lord's anointed, Nephi went to his father and asked where he should go to obtain food. Humbled by Nephi's faithfulness, Lehi inquired of the Lord. The Lord chastened Lehi and then told him to look upon the ball and behold the things which are written. The record indicates that the writing on the Leahona directed Nephi to the top of the mountain where he obtained food for the family. The record also indicates much more. When Lehi saw what was written, he and his entire family did fear and tremble exceedingly. That sounds like something more than just go to the top of the mountain. Perceptive Nephi recognized that the pointers which were in the ball did work according to the faith and diligence and heed which we give unto them. He goes on to say that there was also written upon them a new writing which was plain to be read which did give us understanding concerning the ways of the Lord, and it was written and changed from time to time according to the faith and diligence which we gave unto it. In this context, Nephi says, And thus we see that by small means the Lord can bring about great things. Remember, it was Nephi's faithfulness, simply doing what he could to solve the problem without murmuring, that led the group to look at the Liahona for guidance. The resulting educational value for Nephi, Lehi, and the others far exceeded the physical understanding of where to find food. Nephi's And Thus We See comes from his personal experience and from a much more narrow range of time than what Mormon addressed. In your continuing education, in your employment, in your families, in life, you are going to face both kinds of circumstances. Some circumstances you encounter will be rooted in self-justifications that have been perpetrated over long periods of time. You will also face circumstances that are rooted in personal responses to immediate direct challenges. In all of this, your education will be greatly enhanced by your ability to see the spiritual lessons and connections that evidence the true underlying principles that can lead to resolution. With that capacity, you can also be, and thus we see, scholars. I conclude with another story from my experience at Harvard. While there, I unofficially audited a class jointly taught by three Harvard professors, a lawyer, a theologian, and a scientist. The title of the course was intriguing, Thinking About Thinking. The format of the class was to introduce subjects of societal interest, such as religion and violence or the role of dissent, and to examine each subject rigorously from the perspective of each of these three disciplines. In each session, one of the professors would introduce the subject, and then each professor would explain the perspective of his discipline on it. The three professors would engage one another directly, often pointedly criticizing the lack of relevance or outright error he found in the other disciplines. These exchanges sometimes spilled over into the several hundred students gathered in the amphitheater classroom. I found it a remarkable experience. 
One such session focused on the sources of authority in law, religion, and science, especially on matters of morality. Following the introduction by the theologian, the scientist simply observed that science creates moral dilemmas, it doesn't answer them. He noted, for example, that without science there would be no transplanting of human organs and therefore no black market for such organs. He had little to say thereafter. The lawyer then stood and declared that there are only three sources of knowledge or authority, revelation, discovery of something already existing, and invention. He then began a vigorous line of questioning, wanting to know from the theologian, in essence, the difference between religion and philosophy. The theologian's reply was frankly anemic. He acknowledged the contributions of philosophers and defined religion as a belief system and a body of believers. The lawyer was not satisfied. And with great animation, he questioned why he or anyone else should consider religion's voice any more authoritative than philosophy's voice. He also demanded to know where there was any religious voice on earth, even claiming to speak authoritatively in the name of God. A few moments of awkward silence ensued as the theologian considered how he might respond. His next words were, for me, both unexpected and remarkable. He said, in essence, Well, there was a man by the name of Joseph Smith who lived in the 1800s and claimed that God spoke to him, and he printed a book entitled The Book of Mormon that he claimed came from God and contains God's word for the world today. And the church that he founded, the Mormon Church, is directed today by those who claim to be prophets and apostles to whom God speaks. The lawyer was momentarily silenced as he attempted to process what he had just heard. He then asked, in essence, Well, is there anyone else? The theologian responded, No. The lawyer then continued his critique of religion, essentially ignoring what had just been placed in evidence. Although the response of this capable theologian was inconsistent with his own belief, in the press of the moment he had unwittingly identified the singular place where revealed truth and the preeminence of spiritual enlightenment in learning are found and taught. He had also affirmed their validity. Surprising though this interchange was, especially in the environment in which I sat, the significance of what I had just witnessed was not lost on me, nor was it lost on my non-member colleagues who, following the class, wondered why the lawyer had not engaged the response more directly. Not knowing the mind of the lawyer, I could only surmise that he was attempting to not give added attention to the one voice that directly and authoritatively refuted his premise. As you leave this university, and as your education continues, you will come to know more fully, as I have come to know, the essential place of spiritual elements in learning and teaching. Mormon expressed the principle well, even with all of his preparation in abridging the Book of Mormon, with all of his reading, conferring, 
and writing. He wanted to be sure that we know what he knows above everything else. And now I, Mormon, proceed to finish out my record, and I make it according to the knowledge and the understanding which God has given me. As you continue your education, make sure you continue to develop an essential spiritual capacity, as the prophets have done, to see as the source of all knowledge sees, and thereby to know and understand as he knows and understands. In these continuing efforts, may the Book of Mormon's phrase, and thus we see, typify and be a reminder to you of the spiritual capacity you are developing. No matter what challenges or uncertainties you face, I pray that you will always faithfully employ this essential spiritual element in your learning. I promise that as you enthusiastically embrace the spiritual element, you and your families will receive everlasting blessings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was A Higher Purpose for Education, with thoughts from Drew Gilpin Faust and Craig A. Carden. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.